We turn now to the Gospel of Matthew and consider in Matthew 17 the history of Jesus Christ and the coming of his kingdom as he ministered here below. We read parallel passages, however, first in Mark 9 and Luke 9. So if you keep your open Matthew 17 through 21, you'll be ready for that when we come there. But let's read Mark 9, 14 through 29, and Luke 9, 37 through 43. These passages are the perspectives of Mark and Luke. To Matthew's perspective, the amazing thing about the one word of God is that they're all one word of God. They don't contradict one another. They complement one another. We're looking at the mountain of truth, beloved, and God uses a Matthew and a Mark and a Luke to look up from their own perspective to come to the same mountain of truth and to embellish that truth, to enlarge upon it for our reading. Mark chapter 9, then, first of all, and we'll read 14 through 29. When he came to the disciples, Jesus came to the disciples. He saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and often he's thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw the people came, that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. And the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he rose. When he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast him out? So he said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. So we turn now to Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 43. Now it came, it happened on the next day, that's after the transfiguration, when they had come down from the mount, the mountain, that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, the spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth, 
and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God, but while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these words sink down to your ears. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Then we'll go to our text in Matthew 17 and verses 14 through 21. I hope you can appreciate the fact that these texts differ from one another, but also they are complementary. They add to the text, which will be the text for our sermon Matthew 17, here again the word of God, verse 14. When they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. And the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed... You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. That's as far as we'll read the very word of God. God bless us. We've read this word, and we hear by faith now the preaching of the gospel, and we're reminded Beloved, that this is the day after, according to Luke 9, Jesus was in this glorious state on this Mount of Transfiguration. We don't know where the mountain was, where he was, and Peter and James and John meeting with Moses and Elijah, but we do know it sure looked like heaven. There was glory in the Son of God in this whiteness so that bespeaks the purity and the exalted state of heaven. And the disciples were amazed. And then there's the voice from heaven from God the Father saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. And so there was that state. And the next day Jesus comes down from the mountain. And he comes with the three and meets the rest of the disciples, the other nine. There's a great multitude and there's scribes and then there's a man with a son who's taken with a dreadful medical, mental, and spiritual condition. And it's like the very opposite of heaven. This is, I believe, the significance, one of the significances of this text, its position the very next day after this visit to heaven of Jesus and of heaven to Jesus by the Father. There's the mountain and there's the mire. So Jesus comes down. 
How shall it be from here on in as he faces the prospect of the cross? How shall it be? Well, beloved, as we know, it's going to have to be a wading through the mire. And heaven will have to wait and glory, the glory of which he had a foretaste. Yes, it's the swamp for Jesus, and soon it will be hell itself. So we see a contrast here, amazing contrast, between glory and where we are, this world. We see an amazing contrast of the, the things that God would say here and the things that he says there, but there's a similarity. In fact, there's lessons here of the God and Father of Jesus and Jesus the Son and his mercy. This is what we learn from this amazing juxtaposition, this setting next to glory, this swamp, and Jesus healing this epileptic who's moonstruck. There's lessons also for faith, and I pray, beloved, that if we learn nothing else here, we can learn how to believe more. And what it is to believe, even if we're mired down in this world, facing enemies and obstacles. In fact, may we learn, and this is my prayer and has been, how to live at the same time on the mountain and from the mountain, even in the mud of this world giving glory to the God of glory. So let's consider mercy on the moonstruck, that it would be the epileptic that's brought to Jesus. Want to consider, first of all, the miserable, uh, wretched uh, mud pile that this world is that Jesus pronounces upon. And then want to consider the, the mercy that the Messiah shows. And then finally, what it is, And this will be for the application of of living on the mountain and from the mountain in the midst of this this world and no longer miserable. I want us to be dissociated from that thinking that in this world of misery, we are just like the miserable. In fact, more than that, we're of all people most to be pitied. Let's remember Jesus' mercy. Well, it's upon is Jesus' mercy. It's upon someone who's called epileptic in our text. And there's much said about this one who's struck down by seizures from time to time, even regularly, that bespeak a a terrible condition. In fact, literally in the Greek, and this is where I get the word moonstruck is uh, from, It is moonstruck. We would get the word lunatic from this Greek word, and many have said there was a lunacy here. He was out of his mind. Not so sure about that, but lunatic comes from the word loon or lunar. In the French, they say, il est dans la lune. He's in the moon for those who are crazy. Well, beloved, this one is in a terrible sort of, uh, uh, of condition. And just a word about why the inspired writers would have used the term moonstruck here. And I believe it's because people just didn't know the diagnosis. It wasn't for this person anyway. The, it wasn't that these seizures were, were understood. They, they were this terrible thing. This terrible condition would come up 
upon him and he'd fall and he'd be thrown into the fire and into the water and so on. We read that he gnashed his teeth and there was foam coming from his mouth. And in addition to this, this moonstruck one was, was mute. He couldn't talk and he was deaf. He couldn't hear. And all possibility of a normal existence and every reality of a wretched existence is personified and embodied in this, this son. He's the son of this father in Israel who's been so struck from his youth. He's the only son of this dad, and this is terrible condition and a miserable state for this child of the covenant. Then there is also this problem, and why it's really the reason why he's suffering seriously here, as our text says, as the, as the man says, and there's a devil behind this. Every other uh, text in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they speak repeatedly that there's a spirit. And it wasn't so, therefore, that the, the sun would just fall into fire or fall into the water, but he was being thrown into the fire, thrown into the water, because the demon inside, called the spirit, wanted to destroy him. What a terrible existence, a devil within and these, these con this condition and these effects of the devil's possession upon one. And just want to remind you that the fires around there wouldn't be just in a certain place, but oftentimes in, in homes and communities in those places that have fires outside to keep warm, burn the garbage, or even cook their food. There's no gas ranges and indoor heating. And so this was happening all the time, and there was this terrible state of this person. And besides that, besides the fact that there was a demon here, the disciples who tried to exorcise, that is, exorcise the demon, cast it out, they couldn't do it. They could not do it. We don't know how long they tried. Apparently, they weren't persistent enough, and certainly they weren't faithless, faithful enough because Jesus said, it's because of your unbelief this couldn't come out. But this was certainly a travesty here. Because remember that the disciples had been given power and authority of Jesus to cast out demons and to heal the sick and to raise the dead, and they'd done that. And they'd come back to Jesus all full of, of happiness that such power would be communicated from heaven through Jesus to them. But now there's this terrible uh, shortcoming of the disciples. They just can't do it. And Jesus isn't there. Jesus isn't there to defend them or to, to take over and to say, let me just do this, I'll, I'll do this for you. No, there's a while, at least today, in which they're arguing with the scribes about this. And you can just imagine, though we're not told, that the scribes were saying, as a result of their not being able to cast this demon out, what's, what's going on here? You've bragged about this Jesus. You've said great things of him, and we're hearing that he might be the Messiah. He's not your ordinary miracle worker or prophet. But here you fail. And Jesus isn't with you. And where are those three? Is he, is he favoring 
them and not you. You see how Judas would have reacted here. So there's this doubt. Beloved, this may be the, the worst thing about this. There's this miserable condition of the Son, but there is doubt cast upon the Son of God. You can imagine the demons that were guiding the scribes, not possessing them, they were possessing the one, but they were guiding and directing the scribes. And so that Jesus' reputation is being assaulted. The devil, you see, working with words, as he often does. As he did in the beginning, God said, now he's putting doubt upon the fact that God has spoken and is speaking today in Jesus. Always the devil's way. And so there's this terrible condition here, and the whole multitude seems to be thrown thrown around and tossed by this apparent prevention of the coming of the kingdom because there's a demon. There's a demon who resists the powers, the alleged powers of heaven. And Jesus, this wonder worker of Nazareth and his disciples. It's a crisis. We've said before that everywhere that Jesus goes is a critical moment. He's the man of crises. He causes a clash wherever he goes, a conflict. He comes not to send peace on the earth, but a sword. And the crises of, crisis of crises, of course, is the, the cross, the crux of the matter. And here it is. And it seems as if we got a problem. We have a terrible problem And Jesus sees it. The second point of my main point here. The bringing out of the epileptic, the moonstruck, the lunatic, the demon-possessed, whatever you want to call it, because he's not healed yet, and the scribes sowing seeds of doubt and unbelief, in the multitude, and there's multitudes here. One text says they're running about, they're running about. Ants, you put a stick in the anthill, they're running about. They're, they're a sheep without a shepherd. What does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? What's his reaction to this? Matthew 17. The man comes and he says, Lord, have mercy on my son. He kneels down, this man of of Israel. Have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic. He's moonstruck. I don't know what's wrong with him, except there seems to be some demon. And he suffers severely. He often falls into the fire, often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't cure him. Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. Now, beloved, I don't know about you, but I found this text to be very difficult, this part especially, maybe. 
Not this part. We can get this one. Oh, faithless and perverse generation. Well, yeah. They were faithless. They weren't looking at what you don't see in the God who is spirit. They were perverse, and that means simply out of the, side, out of the way. They were gone astray from the scriptures that spoke of Jesus. And they were interpreting everything in the grid of law and not of grace and the grid of space and not of eternity and spirit. And so their interpretation of things spiritual was just through a grid of Jerusalem and the coming of the new kingdom had to be another Jerusalem and the coming king had to be another king like David. And the new covenant, whatever that is, that had to be a new covenant of law. And they were missing everything that the truth points to, like Moses and Elijah, who just met with Jesus. They're missing Jesus, the sum of the law, the end of the law for righteousness' sake, and the word of the prophets, if ever there was one. God speaking in last days. They missed the whole thing. And Jesus pronounces that correctly, therefore, of course. That's his assessment. He comes down from the mount. It's as if he'd been spared this experience of the world for a while. He's taken to glory almost, a foretaste of what's to come. What bliss. And Moses and Elijah, they're getting it right now. And Jesus talking with them. And they didn't quite understand this, of course, being Old Testament people of God. But they've certainly been somehow enlightened in, in heaven. But now Jesus is talking to them. And so it's, it's a beautiful thing. Even though they're talking about his decease, it's nevertheless an exodus. His decease involves his resurrection and his exaltation. Jesus had just had that mountaintop experience, and here he is, pronouncing it like it is, as we would expect him. He always does. He, he never pulls punches, does Jesus. He doesn't say, you know, you got a little bit of faith, but you got to work on it. And say, you're just slightly bent here. No, you faithless and perverse and crooked and completely out of the way generation. Nobody's exempt. Disciples, mainly I believe is speaking to this generation in Israel that was given over not only to demons but to demonic teachings and the pride and perversity of man. That's why they didn't want Jesus. They didn't think they needed Jesus, who came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, all of that, I say, I can understand, and I had no problem understanding that. Wrong God, wrong Messiah, wrong idea of holiness, even. But then Jesus says this, and this left me wondering, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Here's the hard part. It seems here as if Jesus is showing some frustration. 
There's no other text like this, almost. Showing that he's had it with his people. That's it. Patience is done. How long shall I be with you? I I, I just can't stand to be here. It grates me. How long shall I bear with you? And those words are simply put and simply meant. How long do I have to put up with you? Imagine us saying that. And imagine all the times and recall all the times when it's not just imaginary that you've thought that. How long do I have to put up with this boss? with these children, with this wife, with this husband, with this minister. Maybe you don't get there. But our patience is not perfect, is it? Now here's the question. There's this miserable crowd and these miserable deniers of truth and the disciples are in this state of perplexity and the giving way to doubt, perhaps. And unbelief was the reason why they couldn't heal the epileptic, the moonstruck. The question I had and have, though I think it's resolved, is this. Is Jesus now miserable? Later on in the garden, he'll pray and I don't know if we understand that prayer either. That's in the garden and he's on his knees and the disciples are sleeping, same ones, Peter, James, and John. By the way, they were drowsy also on the Mount of Glory. Go figure. We wouldn't have done that. But Jesus cries out to God the Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He's, He's speaking of the cross. And yes, we can see that That was a miserable prospect, and Jesus is this wonderful example of humanity wrestling with the will of God, not tempted by uh, anything here in the flesh, but indeed the outward prospect of having to be forsaken of God in that way of atonement. And here, he's frustrated with humanity. Seems. I believe there's a parallel here between Jesus and Moses. Remember, we just last time heard about Elijah. The disciples had a question about Elijah. And remember Moses? He was on the mount, and there were the people dancing around the golden calves. And Moses comes down and breaks over his knees the two tables of the law. Moses later got frustrated as well and couldn't enter the promised land. Well, here's a Moses moment. Here's a moment which is almost enough to break anyone. You come down from glory. Beloved, think of that, the glory of heaven. And the Father has just said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus comes down from the mountain. There's this this madding crowd with a madman in the middle and all of the ones who are to be leaders in Israel not getting it and perverting the people. 
and the Father's pleased with Jesus, but evidently these people, not a one of them, is pleased with Jesus. The same sorts of people for whom he died show their colors here. And if they're not demon-possessed, they're demon-directed. Veritable wasteland of faith. There's a faithless and perverse generation here. Lying generation. Twisted from the word of God. Broken from it. Oh. Well, beloved, here's the truth of the matter. Our Savior is very man. And I'm leading to the second point here. Of course, he's very man. But when you see there's something that looks like frustration and impatience, it's Jesus perfectly expressing himself and not as we. That, of course, is what we have to know. We know that. We know that. Just as he did not, in his moment in the garden and seemingly having second thoughts about this cross death, just as then he did not sin at all. He showed no sin at all. Just so he shows no sin at all here. He's not Moses. Let me show you another man. It's Jesus, perfect son of God, in whom the Father's well pleased, and he's still well pleased with him. And he's not going to break the tables of the law. He's not going to pronounce that these wicked people are rebels and strike the rock twice and and do something contrary to the temperament of God. No. God is pleased with Jesus in glory, and God is pleased with Jesus in this swamp of humanity. And Jesus shows that he's worthy of the good pleasure of his Father simply in expressing his outrage here. That's how I'd put it. His outrage it seems to us like mere frustration. Oh, I'm just, I'm about done with this. Is not and cannot be. He's outraged here. And he's being didactic here. He is expressing this, saying this, so people can hear and know the gravity of the situation. That they, for all of their running about in unbelief, are showing themselves unworthy of this Man, Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus. That's what's being revealed here. The people are getting it by the reaction of Jesus, the holiness of Jesus, Messiah, who is Jesus, reveals himself at this time as the Messiah who's come just for this, just to be in the swamp in the mud, in the mire, wherever you want to call it, among the lunatics, the demon-possessed, the demon-directed people. 
He shows mercy. Beautiful. He shows mercy to the man, mercy to the child, mercy to all of us. Jesus rebuked the demon. First, he says, bring him here to me. Commands the father to bring his son to him. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Just like that. Oh, not just like that. There was a convulsing. We read in the other narratives and the, the demon wanted to have this last word and this last throw and this last fling in the body and I suppose the soul of this child. And, but then he comes out and he's as a dead man and Jesus takes him by the hand and he raises him up and there's this release from all of this infirmity of sin. And it's an answer to the prayer of the man. Lord, have mercy on me. That's why Jesus is expressing himself this way. He's come and it's not righteous people he's saving. It's wrongest people he's saving. It's not believing people he's saving. It's unbelieving people. It's not godly people he's saving. It's ungodly people he's saving. Testimony to us, of us. It's exactly what we need to hear. Jesus would show mercy on us exactly because we need mercy. And ours is a wretched existence indeed, whether demon-possessed or demon-directed. This is the state of man unkind. Jesus heals the child He shows his power, he shows his ability, he shows his authority, and especially this is his mercy that he's showing. His kindness and love and grace to those in need, that's what mercy is. Grace emphasizes the freeness of the favor, the unconditionality of the favor. Mercy, this virtue of love that reaches down and plucks from the whole those who are in the hole and from the swamp, those who are in the swamp, and rids of demons, those who are demon-possessed. He's the son of an Israelite here. Let's get that right. This is Jesus, the good shepherd, having uh, compassion on the sheep of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is a son of an Israelite. Jesus is revealing himself as the Messiah of God, who is the God and who is the Messiah of the people of his good pleasure called Abraham's seed. The God who never goes back on his promise and who will show mercy, who will extend this to the furthest corners of the earth. But first of all, it was to the furthest corners of Israel he went. And so Jesus comes. And he works his mercy. And he shows that this is the kind of Savior we have. And this, beloved, is is nothing, of course, compared to his showing mercy and coming down from the mountain to the swamp and then going to the cross. Jesus is having a foretaste here of, of what it is to go even to hell itself. Far worse condition than just being among sinful people is to be that sinner representing sinners in the hands of an angry God, there Jesus, who dies for us. 
Especially is there mercy shown to us in this passage as we're given lessons of faith. I want to just expound a bit on that for you. Jesus, he speaks here of the fact, the reason why the disciples could not cast out the demon. And he says, because of your unbelief, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. There's a lesson here, I say, for faith, and principally it's the lesson of the kind of faith that God gives that enables us to do anything so that nothing is impossible. Now that's the, on the face of it, the explanation. Of course, it needs qualified. What's anything? Anything that God wants. Anything that's not just an obstacle for our entertainment and our feeling good, but anything that's an obstacle to faith. That's what we have to remember here. That is, anything that would hinder our believing and growing and being rid of sin and being rid of shame and guilt, God says, by faith, this will be overcome. This mountain that hinders you from drawing near to God, yes, indeed, that will be as nothing. It will be made a plain. You will say to that mountain, to that Goliath, or to that little thing, anything in the way, move, I need to go to God. And that thing, that mountain, that Goliath in your life, that sin will be gone. That's the promise. If you only have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, the smallest seed, children, that the Israelites knew of, at least just about one of the smallest seeds, in Israel. Little tiny seed that they'd plant in the ground, you'd think nothing would come of it, and yet it grows to this great tree and the birds of the air, they nest in it and, and so on. Just a little bit. That's the kind of faith he's saying. The kind of faith that he gives and that we need to have. Only let it be this couple things, three things maybe, about faith. Its character must be such that it's grounded in Jesus. Faith. True faith. Its origin, in other words. I'm going to use some O words. Its origin must be in Jesus. It must be in this relationship that we have. This faith that moves mountains. So that out of this relationship, there comes this understanding of what is interfering with the relationship. Jesus speaks of himself as being the vine and we being the branches. And without me, he says, you can do nothing. Implying that if we are not living out of that branch or that vine... We are nothing. We can do nothing. There's one thing, let's get it and say it in different words. There's one thing you can do without Jesus, beloved. That's nothing. That's the thing you can do. Nothing. Absolutely nothing can be done without Jesus. 
That means without faith in him. And that would be the second thing. The origin must be in this relationship with Jesus. And then the object of our faith must be Jesus. Our believing must be in Jesus. It must not be in our resources. It must not be in in our potentials and in the number in the church that are praying for us, maybe. And we get more to pray for us, and then we're certainly going to be heard of God because we're relying on that. The object of our faith must be the origin of our faith. That's Jesus. And that means this. Beware the spiritual monstrosity that is this. Faith in faith. Don't have faith in faith or faith in your faith, or faith in somebody else's faith. Have faith in God, in Jesus revealed. That's what he's teaching here. He's taught it elsewhere. He'll teach it again. Without me, you can do nothing. I do everything for you. I do everything in you. Or you're helpless, and you're just showing that I came to have mercy. Have faith the grain of a mustard seed, faith that is the seed of the divine one in you, not making you divine, but attaching you to God. And so that would mean that with regard to the obstacles of faith, there's another O word. The origin of faith is Jesus. The uh, the. The object of faith is Jesus. But with regard to the obstacles of faith, those mountains, it's not, let's say it this way, the mountains themselves that are the problem. This is where a lot of the charismatics or whatever get into trouble. The point of this passage, you have a sickness, They'll say, look, Jesus says you can even remove mountains. Beloved, the problem is not the mountains or your cancer. It may be that God wants you to have the cancer so that you grow in faith that way. A member of the church died today. If we had prayed, would he have been kept? No, God had this in plan for him, and he does for every one of us unless Jesus comes first. The obstacle to God is not our death. We die in Jesus. The obstacle is our unbelief with regard to the thing. You call it a mountain, could be cancer, could be debt, whatever. The obstacle is our unbelief in the midst of the situation. Sometimes people think people are the the problem. Some think circumstances are, mountains and hard things, other things people are. Get them out of the way. Well, what we start doing then is saying, gossiping about them, backbiting, slandering, those kinds of things. I'm going to get that person out of the way. They're going to be undermined in their reputation. Nobody's going to listen to them anymore and... This is what happens, and this is why the evolutionary theory advances, because everybody is trampling on the reputation of others to get to the top of the mountain. We're acting like bees and and beasts of the air, skunks and foxes and traitors and so on. Beloved, people aren't the problem. 
If anyone's the problem, you are, and, and I am. The problem is our unbelief and our unwillingness to deal with people properly, like with love and with wisdom and with grace and forgiveness, and sometimes you've got to run from them because they're bad for you. They're a temptation for you. Jesus is addressing a spiritual reality, faith, and the need for faith. Not for strategies and getting enough people to pray and doing this and that, but for faith. This is what Jesus is talking about here. And there's another thing, of course, in the... This, the, the, the father of the epileptic son leads us here. And he says, I don't know if it's here or in one of the parallel passages, I know it's there, maybe two of them. Jesus says, if you believe I can do this and so on, and he's condescending to the man and he's wanting to teach him. And the man says, I believe, right? Well, not quite, he, he goes on. I believe, help Thou my unbelief. Don't you love that? There's a humble man. There's a man who's come and bent the knee before Jesus and pled with him as the Lord of heaven and earth and the only one who could save him and his son. And he's humble before him. He says he believes, but he knows the infirmity of his faith, and that's what we need to know so that, again, we're not believing in our faith. We're not trusting in our faith, in our works, the works of faith. That's federal vision. Beloved, have the vision of the God who shows mercy, and you will always say, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. It's not perfect, but you are. And my word isn't sure, but yours is. And you tell me, if I come in your name and relying upon your redemption, re relying upon your coming again, I will be heard. And oh God, I need you. Even though I'm a child of yours, I need you to keep me to be your child. All things are possible, Jesus says. And he doesn't. He's not lying here. We've lessened the all things to all the things that are necessary for our faith. Kind of like our praying the agar's prayer for an agar's portion. Feed me with food that's good for me so that I don't lie and steal and cheat and dishonor the name of God. I just want enough. In other words, give me daily bread so that I can be a Christian with my daily bread or my daily ham, whatever. But just so I can be a Christian. So when we have this perspective of faith, we're realizing we need to be a Christian. We need to be a follower of Jesus. We need to honor God in Jesus revealed. After all, he came from glory in the first place, and he came to our swamp, He's worthy of all our attention and all our faith. Our oh, beloved, final point is this. Final point. 
We need to be guarded against several things. One of them is being those who are thinking we're just miserable or whose only prospect in this life is misery. There are some Christians like that. This is what Jesus came to, and this is who we are even. Faithless and perverse church of Christ in the New Testament. And we look to Romans 7, and Romans 7 has a man who says, O wretched man that I am, and that's the Apostle Paul, because he has this conflict within the good that I would I do not, the evil that I would not, I don't want to do it, I find myself doing it. There's this wretched existence, this duality in the Christian life, and we can give over to that, ourselves over to that, and God hasn't answered prayers the way we thought, and and we blame maybe our unbelief, or blame God on our unbelief, I don't know what we're doing, but we live miserably and unfruitfully because The emphasis seems to be, and this is sometimes preached, an imbalance so that sin and sin and sin is preached. And the people, they they may appear to be little because they're cowering and the, the preacher, after all, has said, you are the faithless and perverse generation. You are the adulterers and adulterers. And so it appears that they have this godliness and they're also sober and they don't want to believe and entirely because doubt is a part of their virtue. You need to preach the gospel. And this is the reality of the realities. The gospel is this, beloved. Jesus came down from the mount He healed an epileptic there, died for our sins on the cross, went to hell, but came back and is risen and is ascended. And now he sent forth the Spirit. So here's the wonder of wonders. In the midst of the misery of this world, in the miserable people of this world, we have this newness about it, and all things are made new. You know why? Because, beloved, We are taken to glory. Do you know that? If you be a Christian, here's your position. Ephesians 2 and verse 6. God has raised us up together with Christ and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then if you look at Ephesians 3 and verse 20, there's this power that's given unto him who's able exceedingly abundantly to do above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations. And then there is this in in Colossians 3, 1, the fact that we were raised with Christ and if we are raised with Christ... We are to seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God and set our mind on things above and not on the things of the earth for you died. He's speaking of living Christians. You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears then you also will appear with him in glory. You see what this is saying? The reality of the gospel is yes, there's misery 
but from it we've been delivered. That is, there's miserableness and there's a swamp. But here's where you are in heaven with Jesus. As sure as he is living, so are you in him. As sure as you are more than conquerors through him who loved us, so indeed it is the case in your earth. So here's your obstacles. Debt. You shout to the obstacle. Move to the side. Yes, it might be there. I might take 10 years to pay it off. However, my debt to God is paid by Jesus. Here's cancer. And you say to that, that mountain that appears to tempt you and prevent you from growing in faith in God in the midst of the cancer, you say to cancer, but what are you? You have no power over me and over my soul. And you say to this and that and the other thing, you say to this problem, this problem and of this problem child, maybe a daughter or a son gone astray. You say with regard to that, that's not going to get me. That's not going to mire me in the mire. As wretched that is, as that is. No, it's not. Because Jesus' glory is at stake. I'm going to believe in him. I'm not going to believe in him who said, I have an existence with him now. And my life is not even my own. It's his. So what do you say, Beloved. And what do we say? What are we going to say at the funeral of a brother this week and facing every single obstacle to believe? What are we going to say? Well, beloved, the devil comes to you and he wants to say something. You tell him, but devil, and I don't recommend talking to devils, but you would say, shut up. I've been with Jesus, and I'd heard, I'd heard, I've heard him say that I can do all things, even move mountains, through Christ who strengthens me. And I have a place in heaven, and I'm even there now. And to me, the face of the ground is renewed, and there's this new creation that God has made. And my life is about God, and it's not about you. And though I'm miserable, and I want to help those in misery... Nevertheless, I help from the perspective of the mountain. And that's as church, we have to remember that. With a mountain on a hill, or excuse me, the mountain, uh, the city, excuse me, on a mountain, the city on a mountain in this world. So we're in this world, but we're up. We're in this miserable existence. But we're in glory, and we're bound for glory. That's our hope. Leave with that hope. Leave with that confidence, that faith in Jesus. Come down to show mercy. Amen. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us and keep us and help us to stay on the mountain, to know that no obstacle shall Prevent us from growing in you and from knowing and experiencing your love. You are God, the God of all glory, but whose glory has shown in this sinful earth and sinful world and your presence in it. Now here we are, Father. May we live as those who are in the world, but not of it, who have power to overcome all things, all demons, all personal demons, 
all of our past, all of our present, all of the future anticipated difficulties. What a great God you are. You give a word and you give a word for all time and all sorts of sinners. And you are magnified as we respond and say we believe. Lord, work in us humility to pray. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And to be confident, you will. Amen.